I want you to remember back, remember back to last week, remember back to the two prior weeks. And if you were here for the movie on Luther, remember back to that, okay? Because the question for today is this. So what are some of the similarities and differences between the Luther and his ministry and Zwingli and his ministry? So think back. I know it's, it's a while, and it's, it's Sunday morning. It's 9 a.m. more of trying to stay within the church. Okay. Okay. Sandy says Luther did more to try to stay within the church rather than to break away from the church. It is on. I saw somebody in the back. Can you hear? All right. Thumbs up back there. Thank you very much. Okay. All right. Back to our question. Luther's Wingley. Similarities, differences. They did. They split over communion. That was a big difference for them. What exactly about communion did they disagree on? Whether or not it was truly the blood and body of Christ or representation. The presence. The presence. How, how Christ is present in the communion. Okay, that's good. What else? Yes. They were both very skilled in the scriptures. They both used the scriptures as foundational documents. Yeah, they very much. They they came to where they were because they studied the scriptures. It Yes. Yes, Professor Cooper shared with us that these ideas were floating around prior to Luther and Zwingli, but they really come they come to their come to their beliefs because they are really steeped yeah that was different wasn't it <laughs> they they soak themselves they immerse themselves in god's word okay what else similarities differences they both had places where it was okay to point out corruption or inconsistency. Not everybody used to have that, where you could, you, you had the backing of your rich prince, or you had a, a civic society where it was okay to, to, to say, hey, I call no fair. Yeah, this is very important. One of the things that really helps both Luther and Zwingli in their ministries is they had, they had some outside support. Um, Luther from from the prince or duke, I think I saw it as both, or and Zwingli from the city council, they they're working within a framework that there is some outside secular entity that actually is endorsing in them or helping them spread their ministry, and that's going to make a big difference when we look at the Anabaptists today. 
Anything else that you remember? I know it's hard, you know, but, but I'll tell you that um, um, different cultural groups have different what we call wait time in terms of somebody asks a question and how long you wait for a response. Yeah, and um, I've taught college students. I've learned to wait. <laughs> <laughs> Marilyn, did you have something? Um, yes. Well, he, he was, remember, he went to war. He went to battle. Okay. And he, he dies in the, he dies in the midst of the battle. But what happens then is his enemies, um, after the, after the battle sort of, you know, settles down or the, however you settle battles these days, I don't really, I don't, don't really know. But afterwards, the enemy finds his, um, finds his body, and they cut him up, and they burn him. They burn the body. Okay. But his heart remains. So, so one account says, yes. <laughs> one account says that they found his heart, and it was whole, and it was not burnt. Yes. <laughs> Thank you very much, Vicki. Vicki was listening. Very good. Yes. Mm-hmm. And what did they agree about it? it w- that infant baptism was an okay thing to do, right? They both they both supported it against what, the people that we'll talk about today, the Anabaptists. All right, and let me just say, remind you one one difference in their motivations. Um, because you see, you see it really. I think in um, Luther's um, Luther's writings, his his passion, he's he's wrestling with the scriptures for his own personal salvation. Zwingli comes to this as a as a pastor. He comes to this with a with a I think with a more of a shepherd's heart, and he is he wants to understand the word so that he can teach his people because he is afraid that he could, if he doesn't understand the word properly, that he could lead them astray. All right. Very good. Okay, you're now up, awake, and thinking? All right. We'll start with the Anabaptists. Remember back, we talked about, um, we talked about the disputations or debates that were held in Zurich. The city council convenes the disputation. They invite members of the clergy. They invite um, leaders of the community. Lay people come. And they discuss issues, uh, matters, of the, matters of the church that they disagree on. So if you'll remember, the second disputation is in October 1523. And at this time, there's a young group of men who have been doing a Bible study with Zwingli. And like Zwingli, they believe that the word of God is the primary authority. It is the arbiter over all decisions with regard to faith. When Zwingli was participating in the disputations, however... This group of young men 
they felt that Zwingli, he just wasn't pushing hard enough for reforms. He wasn't, he wasn't advocating hard enough. At the second disputation, they discussed many things. They talked about infant baptism, then the corollary to that was adult baptism or what they call re-baptism, what we, we often refer to as believer's baptism. Um, they talked about the use of images, the elimination of the mass. On the second day of the disputation, several speakers have spoken out against continuing to use the mass. The young men, the young reformers, they were waiting for Zwingli to stand up and, and recommend to the city council that the city council should decree that they will eliminate the use of mass in Zurich. He doesn't do that. At the end of the day, um, they announced that the topic for the next day, the third day of this disputation, is going to be purgatory. All right? And at this point, Conrad Grable, who's one of these young men who's been studying with, with Zwingli, Conrad Grable stands up and he says, wait, I want us to continue to discuss the, the use of the mass and we should get to the point where we're ready to eliminate it. Zwingli opposes this and, and he, says, he says no. Zwingli believes at this point there aren't enough votes essentially to carry, to carry the decision to eliminate the mass and what Zwingli wants to do is to continue preaching on this until he can convince more, more of the members of the council and ultimately get that vote to happen, all right? So he, he's, he is against this. And at some point, Zwingli says, you know, Conrad, you've got to sit down. The city council is going to make the decision. At which point, another young, um, one of these young reformers stands up and he says to Zwingli, you cannot, you cannot put this decision in the hands of the city council. This decision is God's decision to make. And Zwingli says, Zwingli turns around and he says, um, I will preach I will preach to the city council. I will preach. We will, and essentially he's telling them we'll get there. And if you remember last week, ultimately they do get there, but it's another couple of years, okay? The third day comes, they continue to discuss the mass because the young reformers won't let, let it go. But the city council does not, does not vote to eliminate the mass in October 1523. It'll take them another two years. And by the end of the disputation, this group of young men are thoroughly frustrated with Zwingli. So, after this, after this meeting, we begin to see signs that they're going to break from Zwingli. There's a letter by Conrad Grable to his brother-in-law in which he criticizes Zwingli. 
And then in early 1524, Conrad Grable, Felix Munz, and George Blaurock, and some other men, they begin to study the Bible without Zwingli. And here's what Conrad Grable said. We were listeners to Zwingli's sermons and readers of his writings, but one day we took the Bible itself in hand and were taught better. Okay. In August, oh, wait, before August, in 1524, there's a pastor named Wilhelm Rublin in a neighboring village. He starts to preach against infant baptism. So by, in August, the city council actually passes a law that all infants must be baptized. In a village outside of the city of, of Zurich, but within um, the canton Zurich, three fathers decide that they are not going to baptize their children. This leads to the January 1525 disputation. In January 1525, the city council decides with Zwingli that that children should be baptized, infants should be baptized. And they declare that anybody who does not baptize their infant needs to leave Zurich. Okay? This is very different from the way we view our lives, right? This, this, This is not something that would happen here. Shortly after that meeting, this young group of men who have been studying the Bible together, they meet at the home of Felix Muntz, And they're discussing what are they going to do with regard to this new law. The men pray. And after this prayer, George Blaurock, he's known for his boldness. He's sort of the Peter in the group, if you will. He says, uh, he turns to Conrad Grable and says, will you baptize me? Conrad Grable, because none of them, none of them, we, they, we haven't done adult baptism at this point. Okay. Um, Conrad Grable agrees. He takes a scooper of, uh, of water from a pitcher and pours it over, pours it over George Blaurock's head. Then George Blaurock baptizes each of the other men in turn. This is the beginning of the Anabaptist movement in Switzerland. And what I want to do now is to give you just a little snapshot of a few of the leaders of the Anabaptist movement. As you'll find out, they all die early, so there were a lot of them, more than I can talk about. Okay, we're going to start with Conrad Grable. Grable was one of six children born to Jacob and Dorothea Grable. His father was wealthy, and his father was actually a member 
of the Zurich City Council. Conrad spends six years at the Carolina School at the Great Minster in Zurich, and then he goes to the University of Basel, okay, 1514, and he studies in a bursa led by, um, led by Glarian. Okay, a bursa is kind of a combination boarding house and college, led by a, a leading scholar. Glarian is a humanist. He's also a friend of Zwingli's. From Basel, Grebel goes to the University of Vienna. The University of Vienna had about um, 5,000 students. They had a reputation for drunkenness, violence, and sexual promiscuity. Sadly, Conrad was no different than his his classmates, okay, and, and he was known for his, his drinking, for his promiscuity, for his disorderly behavior, so much so that in 1518, he is um, essentially dismissed. He cannot come back to the university, okay, so he goes to Paris to a um, study in a bursa led by Glarian. Okay. Here, he's kicked out after only three months um, because he's in a brawl in which two Frenchmen die. Essentially, he bums around for a while until 1520 when his father finally refuses to send any more money and demands that his son come home. This actually turned out to be a turning point for Grable because he goes, he returns to Zurich, and there he begins to study with um, Zwingli. <clears throat> and he flourishes here. He's found something that he's interested in, and he, he does well learning the languages, Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. By 1522, we have some indications that Conrad Grable has, <clears throat> has gone through a change, a conversion. In July of that year, he publicly defends the gospel. We've already said after the second disputation, um, Grable is frustrated with Zwingli. He doesn't believe that Zwingli is moving the reforms quickly enough. And so he joins that small group of men who are going to study the Bible without Zwingli. After that meeting that the young men have in January where they baptize each other, um, they start to go out witnessing, house-to-house witnessing, and baptizing people. In April, in April of that year, in St. Gall, about 500 people were baptized. As more and more people start joining, start joining their movement, they cannot keep it a secret. By October, Grable is arrested with Blaurick and, and Muntz. They are, 
In prison, they are tortured. Um, the authorities are trying to get them to recant on what they've been teaching. Ultimately, there's a trial in March 1526, and they are sentenced to life imprisonment. Somebody helps them escape. Now, I don't quite understand it. I'm going to tell you that the descriptions of the life in prison and how much they're tortured doesn't seem to leave much room for escape, but, but apparently they escape, okay? Um, and Grable continues his ministry always hiding from the authorities. Now, throughout his adult life, he suffered from poor health. Um, he attributed that to, um, they don't explicitly say a sexually transmitted disease, but he attributes it to the fact that he was cavorting with too many young women during his days in um, younger days. So um, he's generally in poor health, and ultimately he succumbs to the plague. Next is Felix Muntz. Felix was born in um, Zurich around 1498, and he was the illegitimate son of a Catholic priest. He was well-trained in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. Um, we've said he, he, studies, he studies with Zwingli. After that second disputation, he, he's part of the group that breaks from Zwingli and starts um, studying the word on their own. After the, after the um, January 1525 meeting of the group where they baptize each other, great um, months becomes known for his witnessing to people, house-to-house evangelism. He goes with Grable often. As I said before, with Grable and Blaurick, He's imprisoned in October 1525. They are sentenced to life imprisonment. They escape from prison. They continue their ministry. Muntz is arrested again with Blaurock in December of 1526. And in January, there's a trial. Prior to that time, he's tortured because they're trying... Tortured like they put them on the rack and stretch them on, because they're trying to get them to recant... Um, the men will not, they will not recant on their beliefs. And so at the trial, he's sentenced to death. And in March 1527, he is executed by drowning. So obviously a very short ministry. We... um, We don't have too much of his writings, but one thing that has remained is a hymn that he wrote, and this is one of the stanzas from it. With gladness will I sing now, my heart delights in God, who showed me such forbearance that I from death was saved, which never hath an end. I praise thee, Christ in heaven, who all my sorrow changed. Okay, George Blaurock. I'm not going to repeat those aspects of 
Blauick's ministry that we've already touched. Blauick was known for his zeal, not necessarily his good judgment. He was, he was known, for example, for um, entering Reformed churches and then challenging the minister. He and then taking over the pulpit from the minister and preaching himself. So you can easily see that he's not, he's not going to engender much favor from, um, from those who are following Zwingli, right? Um, he, in his ministry, he, he does a lot of witnessing. He baptizes people. And he is arrested in um, several times. He's banished from several cities. Ultimately, he's going to leave Switzerland and goes to um, Austria, where he has a very productive ministry, converting and baptizing many. Once again, as the ministry becomes successful, the number of congregations grows the number of people within each congregation grows, and it becomes harder and harder for them to keep this a secret. So ultimately, uh, Blauerk is arrested in Austria, and he's burned at the stake. And here is one of the hymns that is, remains from Blauerk. Lord God, how do I praise thee from hence and evermore that thou real faith didst give me by which I thee may know. Forget me not, O Father, be near me evermore. Thy spirit shield and teach me that in afflictions great thy comfort I may ever prove and valiantly may attain the victory in this right night. <clears throat> I'm going to move now to an Anabaptist leader who did have a long ministry and did write a lot, and that is Menno Simons. Simons was a, became a priest in 1524, and while serving as a priest, while serving as a priest, he starts to question what the Catholic Church taught. In particular, he begins to question whether the bread and the wine become the actual body and blood of Christ. He later wrote that he thought these thoughts in his head were from, were from the devil, and he tried to repress them. He prayed that God would guide him. And ultimately, these doubts lead him to start studying the Bible. Years later, he wrote, in the year 1524, being then in my 28th year, I undertook the duties of a Catholic priest. But I had not touched the scriptures during my life, for I feared if I should read them, they would mislead me. Behold, such a stupid preacher was I for nearly two years. Okay, so these doubts, these doubts about um, the Eucharist lead Menno Simons to start studying God's word. 
And he got an answer. Finally, I got the idea to examine the New Testament diligently. I had not gone very far when I discovered that we were deceived and my conscience, troubled on account of the aforementioned bread, was quickly relieved without any human aid or advice, though I was encouraged by Luther in the belief that human authority cannot bind to eternal death. So, Menno finds his answer about the Eucharist in the Bible. Once he starts studying the Bible, he continues to expand his knowledge of the word, and he becomes known for being an evangelical preacher. But later he wrote that even though he was studying God's word, even though he was preaching on God's word and was what he called a good fellow, his life was empty. And he was engaged in activities such as gambling and drinking. A turning point comes for Menno Simons in 1599, sorry, 1531, when an otherwise unknown Anabaptist named Snyder was beheaded for being rebaptized or, or having a believer's or adult baptism. Hearing of this event leads Menno Simons to search the scriptures regarding infant baptism. And he comes to the conclusion that there is no biblical evidence for infant baptism. And he wrote, I examined the scriptures assiduously and meditated on them earnestly, but could find nothing in them concerning infant baptism. I dared not trust my own understanding, but consulted several ancient authors. I consulted Luther, Bollinger, having thus observed that authors varied greatly among themselves, each following his own opinion. I became convinced that we were deceived in regard to infant baptism. At this point, he's transferred back um, to be the priest in the village where he grew up. Um, And now he's going to struggle because he's recognizing that although although he's in the word and preaching the word, his own life is not being transformed by the word. And at this time, there is a radical Anabaptist movement in Munster, Germany. And Menno comes in contact with some of the leaders of this movement. He's impressed with their passion. He's impressed with their commitment and the way they have totally changed their lives, the way they're living out their lives, in alignment with these beliefs, even though he believes that they are misguided in their beliefs. But this is what he thinks about himself here. I spoke much concerning the word of the Lord. Without spirituality or love, as all hypocrites do. And by this means, I made disciples of my own kind, vain boasters and frivolous babblers who, alas, like myself, did not take these matters too seriously. Okay, 
we're going to pause on Men of Simons because I have to tell you about um, the Munster Rebellion. In part, this is, again, this is a group of people, radical Anabaptists. Um, in Munster, Bernard Rothman was a radical, oh, sorry, not Anabaptist. Um, Bernard Rothman was a radical Lutheran pre- pastor who developed a following by preaching against the Catholic Church. He starts to focus on the belief that all wealth should be equally distributed amongst the members of the community. As you can, as you might imagine, right, the poor are flocking to him. And, you know, because, well, the poor are flocking to him. He's gaining, he's gaining a large following. Um, when it's time for the election to, for the magistrates of the city, Rothman and his followers are able to put many of their people into leadership. Jan Mathis and Jan Bockelson, who had been followers of Melchior Hoffman, visit Munster. Hoffman was a lay preacher um, who had predicted that Christ would return in the year 1533 and would come to the city of Strasbourg, and Strasbourg would be the New Jerusalem. Okay, uh, Mathis and Bockelson are two of his followers. You know, the problem with prophesying something like that, 1533 comes, it goes, Christ did not return. Okay, so they are, they are disillusioned. Hoffman is imprisoned. Um, they become leaders of this group that are now sort of looking for something else because the New Jerusalem didn't come. Christ didn't return. So Mathis and Bockelson believe, they start to preach that Hoffman just got the date and the city wrong. And they proclaim that Christ is going to return and he's going to go to Munster. In January 1534, Mathis declares that Munster is going to be the new Jerusalem. And many of his disciples join him in Munster. They, they introduce adult baptism to the city of Munster. And Bernard Rothman, that radical Lutheran pastor, he is, con- he is persuaded by them. And so he, is, he, along with over a 1,000 adults, are baptized. The Munsterites, as they became known, now control the city, and all the property was said to be held in common. The um, Franz von Waldeck had been um, had been the bishop prince of the city. He had been ousted by the Munsterites. I'm not sure who started the war. One account says it was the Munsterites, and another account read, I read said that um, von Waldeck decides to lay siege around the city to starve the city. Okay. At any rate, there's a siege around the city. And in April 1535, on Easter Sunday, Jan Mathis, 
has decided that God has anointed him as the second Gideon. So he's going to go to battle against the surrounding army. He takes, if you were Gideon, what would you do? Uh, he went with 30, 30, right? 30, 30 men. They were killed. Uh, his body, he was beheaded. His head was hung on a pole so that all the city could see. John Bockelson, who's also known as John of Leiden, he was deemed the next leader. Um, He's young. He's like 25 years old. Okay, and he's now the leader of this group. He saw himself as the second David. So he starts wearing royal regalia and is exercising absolute power over the town. There are three times as many women in the town now as there are men because men have died in battle and whatnot. Okay, So he declares that polygamy is, is legal and it's okay. Um, and in the meantime, the citizens of the city they are slowly starving because there's the siege around them and, and no supplies are getting in. Ultimately, what happens is the city's overrun by the surrounding army in June of that year, 1535, and John Bockelson and several other leaders were captured, they were tortured, they were executed, and their bodies hung in cages from the steeple of St. Lambert's Church to, as a reminder, as a warning to all the city, citizens of Munster of what would happen if you rebel. Okay. That's a little interlude about the Munsterites. Let's go back to Menno Simons. Okay? Menno recognized, he recognized the fanaticism and the wrong beliefs about um, and the wrong beliefs. He preached against them. But he also saw in them something that he felt was missing in his own heart. My soul was troubled, and I reflected upon the outcome, that if I should gain the whole world and live a thousand years and at last have to endure the wrath of God, what would I have gained? Another important event for men of Simons um, was the death of about 300 Anabaptists near the town of Ballsward. The Anabaptists had gone to a monastery there to seek refuge, um, escape to escape from persecution. Although Menno Simons believes that they too were misguided. He's troubled by the comparison of the Anabaptists and their faith and his faith. And he feels that his faith in God is is an intellectual belief in God, that he has not not fully put his trust in the Lord. It is just, it's more like 
um, academic content knowledge about God that he has. And so as he ponders the commitment of the Anabaptists, who at this time, if you became an Anabaptist, you were baptized. If you were baptized, people knew that you were an Anabaptist. And at that point, you then became hunted and persecuted. And many, many of the Anabaptists um, are tortured, they're imprisoned, and they are executed. Okay, so Menna Simons is seeing this, hearing about this, and ultimately this, this leads him to change his heart. I prayed that God would give to me a, sorrow, a sorrowing sinner the gift of his grace, create within me a clean heart, and graciously through the merits of the crimson blood of Christ, forgive my unclean walk and frivolous easy life, and bestow upon me wisdom, spirit, courage, and a manly spirit, so that I might preach his exalted and adorable name and holy word in purity. He continues to preach for about, for almost a year within the Catholic Church, and then finally, finally he um, decides that he needs to leave the Catholic Church, and he joins the Anabaptists. Um, by 1536, he's engaged in active ministry among the Anabaptists in Groningen. In January 1539, a new law is passed expelling all Anabaptists from Groningen, and Menno Simons goes to the Dutch province of Friesland and continues preaching there. And during this time, he publishes three books, um, The Christian Baptism, Foundations of Christian Doctrine and True Christian Faith. In 1541, Menno Simons' ministry is, has become too well-known. Charles V, who's the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, announces that 100 gold guilders would be given to anyone who can deliver Menno Simons to the authorities. In 1534, he will... Sorry, 1543, he leaves Holland and goes to northern Germany where um, the people are more welcoming to the Anabaptists. And he becomes well-known as the leader of both the northern German and Dutch Anabaptists, so much so that the biblical Anabaptists are then called Mennonites. For the remainder of his life, He continues as a leader among the Anabaptists, often moving to avoid um, capture and imprisonment. Among the Anabaptists, there will be several disputations, like the ones held in Zurich, but these are going to be held in secret. And they hold these disputations to try to settle doctrinal disputes. Um, Among these are the doctrine of shunning or excommunicating people from the fellowship. Menno eventually sides with the milder view, rejecting the practice of shunning married partners, so separating married couples. But um, he he will go on and ultimately die a natural death. Okay, so Menno Simons, but always living in hiding. 
All right, we have 10 minutes. Okay. I, I want us to talk about some of their points of belief and, and talk about what, what, we, what we might believe. Okay? All right, so one of the disputations um, was in Schleitheim, and out of it came the Schleitheim Confession, in 1527. All right, so this is, um, this is part of the statement on baptism. Baptism is administered to those who have consciously repented and amended their lives and believe that Christ has died for their sins and who request it for themselves. Infants, therefore, were not to be baptized. All right, what do you think about that? Agree, disagree? Agree. And why? And why? Because I was baptized as an infant. Um, was a twofer, is what I call it, with my parents, which is Easter and Christmas for mm-hmm. many years. Mm-hmm. Um, started going to church at 15. <clears throat> Opened up a Bible for myself at 33. And then came to believe that I needed to be baptized because I had no idea that I was, quote-unquote, saved because of infant baptism. Okay. I had to make a conscious decision Decision. of my own when I was able, which I was obviously able at that time. Why do you think infant baptism was such a big deal. I mean, this was huge. Yeah, Creighton. In that time period, infant mortality was very high, so so parents would say, I want to make sure that my child's saved. Your child very well might die, so the the first thing you would do is have them baptized. Okay, so... If you you didn't do it, you could also go to jail. but there, that, there that is right. There wasn't a, a disconnect between secular like we know today. Right. The secular, secular and religious life are really intertwined. Okay. So why else, Marilyn? Well, the parallel between baptism and the uh, circumcision indicates that the baptism is a sign of the covenant. And so the baptism of the child is an act of faith on behalf of the parents, which is confirmed. Okay. Yes, could you hear Marilyn? Okay. And and think about it too. <clears throat> At this time this the infant baptism signals becoming part of becoming part of the community. And it's not just a community of faith. The it's you're becoming, you are part of of Zurich, you know, as you are baptized. You're baptized into that, all right? So one can understand why people wanted to hold on to infant baptism. Why would you be so against someone as an adult saying, I want to be baptized because, because now I know I, I am committing myself um, and confessing Christ? Why would you be so against that that you 
I mean, these people were tortured and they were killed. If you, I'm going to tell you, my bedtime reading this whole week has, <laughs> has really been interesting. Yeah. Okay, so for many people, right, for many people, they're not going to rock the boat. Exactly, yes. Okay, so that's an interesting thought, right? That um, this, rec- this if, if what in... It really seems like the religious leaders wanted control over the city. But I will also say that's part of their culture. That's, it's a collectivist, it's a collectivist society. Um, but then to have somebody individually say, yes, I, I'm making this decision to believe in Christ, and I want to, and this, I'm confirming this by making this, having this adult baptism, that in some sense takes you outside the, the, power of of the of the religious and and secular leaders yeah i'm going to go over here first is there's some money going into into the coffers yes yes there's that yes <laughs> The order of the the order of the life that we've that we've created, yeah. So they were Zwingli certainly looked at them as um, as essentially anarchists, right? They were destroying the the fabric of society. I want to go to one other. Okay, the ban. A Christian should live with discipline and walk in the way of righteousness. Those who slip and fall into sin should be admonished twice in secret, but the third offense should be openly disciplined and banned as a final recourse. This should always occur before the breaking of bread. Okay, so excommunication. How do we feel about that? Marilyn? (laughs) And why? Far more than two times. <laughs> so, so one of the criticisms, one of the criticisms of the Anabaptists was the um, was the notion that they were they were saying that um, once you become a follower of Christ, you are going to stop sinning. 
Um, many, many of the Anabaptist writers, though, Menno Simons, I think, um, was one of them, um, explicitly say they, that they do not believe that once you become saved that you are perfect in your life, that we still go on to sin. Okay, But it is this um, recurring, unrepentant, uh, soul that they that they believe should be excommunicated and is there a scriptural basis for this and where Matthew eighteen that's right okay that's what that's 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 what they're using as their source how do we feel about how do we feel about this Okay. <laughs> Sounds like baseball. Three strikes, three strikes, and you're out. Okay, I get that. Yeah. showing you don't really care, and therefore we don't want you to influence. I mean, Old Testament rule of kill everybody so you don't be influenced by their beliefs, and therefore you lose your own faith. Purity, there's probably a lot of different teachings at this point of old school, you know, or Old Testament governmentality into New Testament religion, and then they overlap. So I can see a point that look, people aren't really passionate or wanting to do that, you become too tolerant, and sin becomes the acceptable practice rather than faith. And they do, they, the, like, <clears throat> Menno Simons, among other Anabaptist writers, do talk about um, discipline being done in love and that the goal is to reconcile with, with the individual, ultimately. They were trying to create a fellowship that by their behaviors, that they were a witness of what God's grace had done in their lives. Um, so, yeah. This doesn't look to me like a theological statement. This looks like the criminal criminal code. Okay. There's nothing spiritual about that. Could you bring this before Jesus himself and say, is this how you work it in heaven with judgment? He'd be like... And so there are writings there. There are a number of writings on it where they really do sort of integrate scriptures into it and talking about what they mean by excommunication. Okay, yeah. So what would you, what can we learn from the Anabaptists? Because the whole, the whole point is not that we just learn some history. Okay, so what, what, what is it that we could take away from them? Yeah. Yes. 
this is, um, I, I, was, I was just overwhelmed reading about so many, many people, you know, who were persuaded, persuaded um, by the Anabaptists. They, they believed in Christ. They made that public statement of a baptism, of an adult baptism, and as soon as they did that, they knew, they absolutely knew that that was going to begin a whole different kind of life in hiding for them. They would be persecuted. Many, many were captured and imprisoned. Many were tortured, horrendously, horrifically tortured. And, and they, were, they were hunted by both um, the, by Protestant and Catholic churches, right? They, they were Zwingli's, Zwingli's reform, did not tolerate the Anabaptists. Luther's reform did not tolerate the Anabaptists. <clears throat> the Catholic Church did not tolerate the Anabaptists. Nobody tolerated the Anabaptists. So when they made that commitment, they knew, they knew that many of them, you know, the likelihood you would surely be persecuted, possibly be tortured and, and be... Um, and die for your faith. So that is certainly something that we can take from them. What else can we take? Yeah. Can we take also the failure of the um, guys who believe in anti-baptism to use love as their primary rule? Now, you started last week with this wonderful point about context. This is a culture that is absolutely crazy violent. And so, you know, I'm wondering at what point these two groups ended up accepting each other. Because surely there is a place for adult baptism. And the guys who advocated for the um, covenant baptism, the child baptism, were the guys in authority. So of course they're going to want to hold it. It's part of their hold on power. So I'd like to know historically, when did they finally say, okay, if, if, you know, if you're not, cult times are changing, you got to be baptized. Whenever you want to be baptized, it's fine with me, kind of. Do you happen, can you answer that? Do you have any I can't answer that. that. I don't know. we're not excommunicating people <clears throat> anymore, and we're not killing them, and so forth. And we're not, right. Yeah. Right. And, and I'm thinking of the, you know, Declaration of Independence and all that. So America sort of had a great time to move. Yeah. But toleration is, is a big issue, I think, in yeah. this whole discussion. Yeah. Yeah. I have a question, kind of the flip side Where um, 
And I don't know when infant baptism became the norm. Um, that is exactly one of the scriptures that Zwingli uses to support infant baptism. Um, I would say that we have to understand the, um, the New Testament times in its context also, which was an incredibly collectivist society. So what does it mean when it says a whole, the whole household was saved? Do they collectively believe together? I, and I don't have a good answer for that. Um, but there are many people here you could talk to. <laughs> and they might have a good answer for you. Fortunately for me, time is up. <laughs> so I want to just ask maybe Dick, would you close us in prayer, please? <laughs>